0: Well, this is two Mother's Days in a row where we're surprised by snow. But we live in Colorado, so we know it's going to be quickly gone, and we're going to get on with the spring and summer. So uh, it's uh, good to see you this morning. Welcome to church. Um, I've got a lot to say this morning in this this particular sermons in this short series we're doing on marriage. Uh, This one might be the most important one. Uh, the first one we dealt with uh, just kind of the nature of of Christian marriage and its orientation towards a covenant as opposed to conscientious consumption when a relationship is continually analyzed on a kind of a cost benefit analysis, like our culture 's been really commodified to where we do that, most of us, whether we realize it or not. Um, Last week we dealt with sex and money. Um, Jarrett just told me, he said, man, I'm so thankful that sermon wasn't on Mother's Day. Um, So I was really careful today, so this one I think is going to be a little easier. Um, Today deals with uh, identity and intimacy. And as I said, I think it it might be the most important one I do in the series. Um, For those of you that are not married and you're you wish you were married, you kind of are open to marriage, um, I would say this one, this sermon, and these two issues that we're going to deal with today um, probably deserve your mo- the greatest amount of consideration that you'll give any, anything that I'm going to talk about. And the reason is, is that there's something about these issues that as Christians we should understand better than a non-Christian. We should understand them, I think, even as, if we understood the chronology of our own lives. We should be able to admit that these things we understand better than we did even a year ago. And certainly they should cause us as Christians to view and to experience uh, marriage and biblical love, um, I think, to a richer and a fuller degree than we ever could without the gospel. Um, Throughout this series, what we've been trying to do is actually acknowledge a trend in our society where uh, particularly young people are becoming increasingly wary about marriage. Um, The marriage rates are going way down in the sense that people aren't getting married as much as they used to, but all the leading indicators are, are actually pointing to the fact that divorce rates are going down. But in spite of all of that, uh, especially those of you that are young, um, there's still this heightened anxiety or worry about it. Um, So what we've been trying to do through this series is really to kind of press into some of the issues that Christianity, some of the assertions that it makes. And these two, I think today, identity and intimacy, are really, really significant. Now... Before we, I launch into these verses that you just heard Brad read, um, I, I want to give you a little bit of background that I think will probably under, establish the context for these a little bit better. Um, one of the most fundamental aspects of becoming a Christian is that we actually come to recognize that we always were worshiping something. In other words, it's, it's not simply when a woman gives her, her heart to the Lord, where she begins to really put her faith in the gospel, she trusts Jesus to save her, that somehow it's a brand new day. There's something about Christianity that allows us to go back before that, and it kind of disallows the idea that we weren't believers, that we weren't worshipers, because Christianity allows us to kind of understand that... Before we embraced the Gospel, we really did worship a lot of things, far more things than we probably wanted to admit, um, because we our basic default setting was our highest satisfaction would come from experiencing the world, from possessing the world, from entering into the world 's relationships. But what happened over time is that we began to realize sometimes through adversity, we began to realize the things that we were really seeking they couldn 't they couldn 't fulfill us they couldn 't provide that much meaning to us, and so it caused us to start a, a a process of a cycle somewhat that would would start with great anticipation when you first become aware of one of these objects that we worshiped before, you typically begin to investigate it, and the more you look at it, the, the better it looks but no sooner do you actually give chase to it in Lay hold of it, um, where you actually begin to understand that it never could provide the fulfillment that you thought that satisfaction was always elusive. The cars began to age and rattle the houses began to have the same maintenance issues that others did. Our relationships all they were just as challenging and as difficult as the former ones, and it didn't it didn 't seem that we were gaining on anything and so By becoming a Christian, we actually saw that we were always worshipping something. There was actually, it was virtually impossible for us to see a time at any point in our lives in which there wasn't something that totally captivated our hearts, something that promised us the moon, literally. And what happened was we just found ourselves repeating this cycle over and over. And for those of us that are older, we, we can see this pattern throughout our lifetime. Well, coming to the gospel, it pointed to something that, that was above the sun. It was something that was no longer in this world, and it actually gave credence to the value of your worship. You see, one thing that we had to admit is that we cheapened our own worship because we put it on so many things that didn't deserve it. Think about it. Think about the companies that we've tried to start. Think about the relationships that we entered into and the things that we actually slaved. We we went into slavery for things. And oftentimes we found that nothing happened but, but us realizing that we cheapened our worship. And what the gospel did is actually declare to you that your worship was far more valuable than you ever thought. And you merely gave it away and it, it 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 appreciated the value of your worship to a point that you can't give it away quite the same anymore now a person that begins to see that is a person who begins to realize the difficulty that you faced in your life not exclusively exclusively but primarily has been due to things inside of you not outside of you you you, you see when even as young Christians, we, we would oftentimes think that the difficulty in the world was because we don't have the right man as a president or we don't have the right people in office. There, uh, we don't write, work for the right company. We don't live in the right city. We, don't, we haven't been married to the right people. You see, it's always external to us. But there's something that changes when we embrace the gospel. It causes us to see that the problems that we faced almost entirely are not external they're internal it was us to a great degree there wasn't anything wrong with the things that we pursued it was what we believed about those things and you see that level of understanding prepares a person for marriage different than anything else you see when a woman grasps that she's no longer hostile and entirely convinced that it's just the externals, that if we can simply change the house or the place that we live or simply change the number of people sitting at the table, if we can simply have some different pets or some different decorations, then we, we could actually be happy. It's, it's not a man that any longer begins to think, well, if we only had this or if we only went there, if we could vacation a little bit more, if I could pursue this hobby a little bit more. It's not like that. It's when a person perfectly no, but it's when a person is able to say, It really was me. All along, it was me. And there's kind of a surrender that comes to an ability just to put yourself in a situation to be humble, to actually care about another human being beside yourself. It's what even David Foster Wallace as an atheist understood we are able to overcome a default system that is. It defines the whole world according to me. When you define a situation and someone asks you what it was like, we always start by saying, there was someone to my right, there was someone to my left, there was someone in front of me, there was someone smarter than me, there was someone slower than me, because it's a default that starts with me. And there's something about the gospel that changes that, that should make you as Christians, remarkable candidates for marriage. Because you're able to understand, if that is going on in my heart, surely I can understand it in the heart of another person. The people that I work with, when I understand that they're more selfish than they should, I get it because I was. When, 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 I, when I pursue things, and I, inevitably I'm, I'm looking for the whole. I'm looking for the, the letdown. Because it's there. Everything under the sun is subjected to to futility. And if you don't believe that, it's your own simple naivety. You just haven't discovered it yet. And so there's something about identity and intimacy that as Christians we should really understand. It should be something that comes so natural to us because we have had to learn it about ourselves for a long, long time. Or we don't believe the gospel. At all. Now, with that background, I I want to kind of push through these two issues and help you, perhaps, see them in a way that is completely different than perhaps the way that you've seen them before. This first point, we saw it in these verses thirty-one and thirty-two. It's, I would even go as far as to say, a radical new identity. There's something about marriage and biblical love when you enter into it that is captured in this verse that Paul writes. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. In other words, he's saying there is something about the convergence of these two lives together that isn't merely an extension of who they were before. Something emerges from that union, that is completely different. Now, no matter where you grew up, you have some idea about the identity that's going to come from a marriage. It's inevitable. So that verse emphasizes one of the most essential yet mysterious aspects of biblical love and biblical marriage. There's something that comes out of it that in every sense of the word isn't just the sum of the parts it's completely new. Now, the most significant aspects of those verses are the leaving part and the holding fast part. Now, the older versions of, in English used to say cleave. And it, those ideas kind of capture the principle of leaving and cleaving. The term for leaving literally meant to separate from something, to leave something behind think about being in a hotel and you've got more junk to put in a suitcase than you can put you can put in that and now you have to choose what are you going to leave and you're making a choice you're making a choice to leave something on that nightstand to leave something in that hotel room it means that you're never going to see it again it can't be something that you're going to expect to find in your luggage when you get home. You made a decision, and you separated from it. In this case, it's, it's specifically talking about a husband that's leaving his father and his mother. In other words, he's leaving all the habits and all the routines, all the rhythms that he was accustomed to, and he's, he's abandoning that. He's leaving it behind. Now, the, 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 this idea of holding fast to literally meant to stick yourself to something like taking two pieces of tape and the adhesive turned in and it, it just it's stuck. It's now is something completely different because it's stuck to what it was before. And this idea now I, I want you to think about it because if you grew up in a conservative circle, conservative circles taught us that the the position of the husband was one in such that when the woman actually got with the program and the marriage was functioning properly, the position of the husband would be so amplified. In other words, she would lose herself, but it would make him more. And see, it was his identity that was pushed forward, wasn't it? It wasn't something new. It was her being used to substantiate and to cultivate and nurture the expression of him. Now, if you grew up in liberal uh, cultures or liberal churches, that's not what you were taught. What you were taught is that it was a democracy, and the two of you went in, and it was always going to be used in an equal way. In other words, both of your identities were going to be advanced. So it wasn't going to be as simple as a husband taking advantage of a wife that is just surrendering so that he can get further ahead and his identity can be advanced further. It was the maintenance of the two. But you see, that's still not this biblical principle. I think in many ways, that idea of egalitarianism, where you had this democracy, at least what it did is pay respect to both parties. But you see, that still is missing this point. This point is something new. It's something entirely new. Now, I, I, I think this starts to get really... Interesting, because it's a very, at the very least, if, if, if you're not married, surely you know people who are. And you would have to admit that this is the principle that makes marriage the greatest loss of freedom that you can possibly imagine. If you're not prepared to lose your freedom, then run away. Because it's impossible not to. And just think about it for a moment when you begin to date you lose freedom don't you to a young couple they begin to spend time together by the very decision to spend time together they're making a decision not to spend time with other people that they enjoy when they they ask one another where do you w- want to go to dinner after 37 years my wife and i still have a problem with this saying what would you like me to bring home for dinner what would you like me to pick up at the store it's like, I don't know, whatever, whatever's fine. That, doesn't, that bird does not hu- fly. It's like, tell me something. She always, she's always saying that. And it, it, that's what happens when, when you get to this point that you're saying, where, where would you like to go to dinner? And someone can genuinely say, I don't care. I really don't care. And other, there's another party that when you're being polite, you say you don't care, but really we care. But see, that's a loss of freedom, isn't it? That's a loss of freedom because you're not going simply where you want to go. You're not simply driving wherever you want to go. You don't go to the movies that you would see all alone because there's a surrender. So that begs the question, what in the world could possibly bring us to the point that we would want to lose ourselves, that we would actually say, it doesn't matter if I continue. It's okay if I die? Not in a literal sense. For some of you, it was like dying. But there's some point that you have to answer that question, don't you? What in the world could possibly cause a woman with a life to not care if she has it any longer? That's the question. Because that's what marriage is. That's what this idea of this identity really is. It's loss it's a loss of freedom it's a loss of life now the way you answer that question is most likely determining the quality of your marriage or any hope that you have for a good one why would you lose your life for this new identity now I want to spend just a couple of moments describing the difference between friendship and marriage. Now, I agree a lot with Tim Keller. I I, I tend to think that he is one of the finest spokespersons for Christianity that I, I am aware of today because he can deal with some of its most difficult topics in a way that doesn't make us all angry. It doesn't make us all want to just ball up our fists and fight. Now... This would be one of the points that I would differ with him on. Because when you begin to consider the the difference between marriage and friendship, it's much greater than most of us imagine. I think it's it's much more significant than that. Um, Most of us would see that marriage, we would see some sort of a relationship that would just be kind of a matter of degree. Just like when you think about loving something and liking something and loving something, you it's actually, if you like it enough, sooner or later you're going to love it. And we think of friendship and marriage the same, but they're not the same. Love and liking are not the same. And marriage and friendship are not the same. Now, C.S. Lewis had a lot to write about, about marriage, in, particularly in his classic work, The Four Loves, um, which there, I've, in, in the sermon notes, there's a PDF you can go and download for free, of the book the four loves very very helpful it describes this friendship where it comes from and it helps us distinguish this this is what he said he said this is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends where the truthful answer to the question is do you see the same truth would be I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can rise, though affection, of course, may. There should be nothing for, uh, there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. That is a very interesting statement because it's basically telling you our friendships by and large throughout our lives emerge when we experience people that are headed in the same direction that we are. Now, I have to tell you that I am remarkably socially challenged. I I, I have people that tell me all the times that I'm, I'm really not that good of a friend, but I think it's about this issue, I really do, because I can tell you that, that my life is so focused, it's so determined, that if I meet you along that way, we're going to get along just fine, unless you stop going, and I, I had a friend that was very dear to me and very close to me, and I, I, I met with him every single week for two hours between 6 and 8 a.m. on Wednesday for about six years and he came to this point that he said I'm beginning to believe that if I no longer go where you're going you're going to walk off and leave me and I said of course I would and he was disgusted with me I said I'm really hoping it would be the same for you he said what do you mean I said I'm not going where I'm going because you're going there I said I hope that you're not going where you're going because I'm going there The fact is we've had a friendship emerge because we're both going in the same direction. And if one of us stops, the other should continue if it's worth going. And see, that's the essence of what C.S. Lewis is saying. Our friendships are going to emerge from people that are traveling in the same direction. If you're going nowhere, there can be no fellow travelers. If you're not interested in anything, you're not going to have any friends. If all you want is friends, there can be no friendship. Because it has to have an objective. Now, that's where there's somewhat of a slim, uh, similarity between friendship and marriage. But they're not, they're not the same. You see, we're, we're going to have a number of friends throughout our lives. But when you really think about it, if you've been married multiple times, it's when people begin to wonder if you understand it. Don't they? They would never question whether you understand friendship because you've had four friends. They would think there's something probably wrong if you've only had four friends in your life, but if you were married four times, see, they would have concerns, wouldn't they? And so there's, there's an aspect of this that's really interesting. Friendships are the result of us discovering others that have the same interests and beliefs, but they typically don't require us to change those beliefs. But marriage does. Marriage does. And so we see that marriage is very different than friendship because it requires you to lose yourself to find something new, to find something else. And you, some of you are probably thinking, especially those of you that have been married for any time at all, that you're, you're saying, well, it really didn't do that for me. I, I was able to go into marriage and I kind of kept myself. I was able to maintain the same job. I was able to live in the same apartment. I was able to keep the same dog and drive the same car. And there was really not a new me that came from it. That might be true. But I believe that to the degree that you haven't given yourself to this identity, your marriage is not functioning the way it should function. Paul said they're no longer two. They become one. There's something new. And so this doesn't mean, this distinction between marriage and friendship, it doesn't mean that friendship and marriage are incompatible with one another. Oftentimes, married couples are indeed best friends. They're indeed best friends. Not as a cause of their marriage, but as the result of it. Think about that. To have a friend that is traveling in the same direction oftentimes is the result of a couple that is able to say, this is who we are. This is what our marriage is for. This is what we're striving for. And that identity now creates, it can't help but create a friendship because you're both on the same path. You're standing in proximity closer than anyone else in your life when it comes to those issues. And so friendship is oftentimes the result of marriage, not the cause of it. Now, I want to give you two points of application that are really pointed in regard to this. The first one, I want you to ask yourself, am I open to a new vision for my life? Now, this is where I want you to be careful and not be really Pollyannish Christians because some of us, I think, would deduce that we should always say yes. Am I open for a new vision? The answer should be yes. Some of you have committed yourself to a decade of education. And for you to meet someone and to open your hand and let that bird fly away with no regard to all the money and all the resource and all the effort that you put into that would be foolish. But there's a point in which you have to be willing to say, am I willing for my life to be redefined? Am I willing to allow and to consider a a, a vision that I haven't considered before? And some of you can't. Some of you are not good candidates for marriage. And it's not because of what's happened between your folks. It's, it's simply because your life has a trajectory that if you were to abandon it, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't. And unless you meet someone that is already in alignment with that course, it could be very destructive. And so let's, don't, let's just be honest as Christians. There's some of us that you shouldn't say, yes, I... I I'm ready to, for a new vision for my life. I'm not. My life has been ordered for decades a certain way. And I think our marriage, the marriage that Tracy and I share, to a great degree, is the result of our friendship that has come over the years by those mutual pursuits. But I think you have to ask yourself the question, am I, am I really open to a new vision for my life? If you are truly set on a course and cannot imagine a new vision for your life, you'll struggle with establishing a marriage that has any hope in it at all. Conversely, if you are in a marriage where you have stubbornly insisted on your own vision, independent from your spouse, you shouldn't be surprised at the lack of unity and oneness that you've never known. You can't have it unless you share a vision. Now, the second question I want to ask you is, what is the vision in our relationship? What is that vision? See, in Proverbs 29 and verse 18, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that, that it simply means where there, you don't have that vision, there's a languishing, there's an de- impoverishment or a destitution that emerges from that. And yet what I find more than any other thing when I help a couple in their marriage or try is that most marriages have no vision. It's two people doing the best they can. And they have two lives that are really on different courses. And what was bringing them together before they were married are the very things that are tearing them apart because they've never developed a new vision. They're not striving for anything together. Whereas if they do that, there's an alignment, a sacrificial alignment of their lives to accomplish those things. There's a sense of interdependence. There's a sense of coordinated effort. And you begin to love and appreciate each other because you know you wouldn't be where you are without. Your wife, without your husband. But most relationships don't have vision. They are basically an extension of who you are personally, not this new identity. And so a new identity is a, a, an amazingly distinctive thing. And as I said, as Christians, we should understand that. We should understand what it's like to have God put us through a paradigm shift and cause us to change the way we view the world and cause us to to value things and see things and to experience things different than we we ever have. This next point is radical intimacy. Now, this one I think is really interesting. Anyone who's been married for any time at all will admit that true intimacy in marriage is difficult to obtain. It's even more difficult to hold on to. And it really doesn't matter whether it's sexual intimacy or emotional in- intimacy, spiritual intimacy, or even economic intimacy. It's hard to grasp those things. And they're almost like water to hold in your hands. They slip through the smallest of cracks. And so this one's kind of interesting because the verse that we examined last time explained that intimacy was an essential part of biblical love. It was taken from... Genesis 2.25, it said the man and the wife, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And it refers to every aspect of life, not just simply naked bodies. And so there's something about that being exposed. And I told you last time that not being ashamed is not the English concept. In English, we think being ashamed is... It's really stressing the internal conclusions that we're making. The Hebrew concept didn't. It said to be put or subjected to humiliation. And so what, what it was getting at in Hebrew is that they could be totally open without experiencing this reprisal, without experiencing this humiliation from the one outside of them. And so it's really interesting because that verse is stressing something that can't be had without intimacy. It can't be had without nakedness. Now, the Bible actually gives two different principles that get at this different ways, and I'm going to go through this quickly. First is the one about the wife. This description of the creation of the wife, of the woman in Genesis 2 and verse 18, is very insightful. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And he's basically saying like opposite there's no sin in the world. God isn't trying to retread or recreate something that didn't work out properly. He's saying, look, I designed the man incomplete. And so I'm going to create this creature called the woman who actually brings his completion into focus. And so there's a sense of, there's a, there's a sense of, of designed intimacy involved there. There's, the physical part where you've got innies and outies but there's emotional parts there's the spiritual part we're very very different and what god did is bring a compliment it was like kind of like those old necklaces around the vietnam war where you had people that were broken and one one of them would wear one half and the other would wear the other half of the broken coin and when he brought them together there was a wholeness that's the idea And so there was this sense and this design in the definition of the woman that you see that intimacy. It's as plain as day. Now, with the husband, you see it twice in these verses. In verse 33, it said, Let each one of you love his wife as himself. In other words... When you love her, you're actually loving yourself. But that was an extension of what he already said in verse 25, where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, how did Christ do that? Well, if you take any time at all reading through the Gospels, what you find out very quickly is that this is actually the, the thematic verse of the whole Gospel of Mark. Got, uh, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. It says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what you see throughout the Gospels. Jesus went, and it didn't matter if it was a lowly Samaritan woman in the heat of the day, that even the other Samaritan women would have nothing to do with him, with her. And he did. It didn't matter if it was blind men that were screaming from the side of the road or lepers that had to cover their faces and stand at a d- great distance and say, unclean, unclean, to make sure that nobody stumbled onto him. He would go and he would heal those people. It didn't matter if they had children with broken legs, crooked legs, or twisted hands or blinded eyes. It didn't matter if they were demon-possessed or if they were hungry. He met all their needs because he wasn't doing his daily double As Christians, we've really screwed this up because we believe that we know what everybody needs without knowing those people. We've let churches tell us for decades this is what you need to tell people. It it doesn't work that way. People want to know that you give a damn. They really do. They want to know that you listen to them. And when we have these packaged presentations, it causes people to say that, to, to conclude, and oftentimes rightfully so, that we're a mile wide and an inch deep. We always have something to say, but not to them. But Jesus wasn't like that. When he gave himself up, it was for what we needed. It was what I needed. It was what you needed. And so when, when Paul says, Husbands, I, I, I want you to contemplate the ministry of Jesus, and I want you to give yourself up for your wife the same way. That is remarkable. Because that is stressing an intimacy that was the same kind that Jesus had. And it only emerged out of humility, understanding, and compassion. And so we see it both sides. You see the intimacy required of the wife, and you see the intimacy required of the husband, perfectly joined. Now, I I, I want to go to another C.S. Lewis quote because this quote deals with vulnerability because let's admit it, if you're going to have intimacy, man, you've got to put a lot of risk. You've got to put a lot of risk. Just think about it. Even getting naked before someone else is really vulnerable. It really, it causes you to say, what is she going to think of these little handles I've got right here on my bag? What is he going to think of these little marks I've got on the back of my leg? It's vulnerable, isn't it? That's just physically. What happens when we're vulnerable emotionally? What happens when we're vul- vulnerable spiritually? When someone is able to actually sit down and to say, you know, I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. The fear of a reprisal is really great, isn't it? Now, listen to what Lewis said about this vulnerability and the inevitable price. He said, There is no safe investment. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That is astounding. Basically is saying, if you're going to have a relationship that is worth anything at all, you're going to have to put yourself at risk more than you ever imagined. And I believe that this is the number one reason why marriages don't, survive. Either they never had that kind of vulnerability or somewhere along the way we decided it wasn't worth it anymore. And the fear of a reprisal, the fear of the other person taking advantage of me caused me to cover my bets. It caused me to play it only... I'm only going to be as disclosed or vulnerable as I can be because I can suffer that loss but not the rest of it. And we lost it. And we've pretended for years that it can still be a good relationship and it cannot. It cannot and it will not unless you're willing to be vulnerable, vulnerable again. Two amazing Aspects of marriage. Identity and intimacy. Now here's the practical application there. Ask yourself, am I really willing to be vulnerable? Can I be completely naked without the fear of shame or reprisal? Have I extended that kind of understanding which creates a place of safety to my wife or to my husband? See, it goes both ways, doesn't it? If I want that place of safety, I have to be willing to give it too. Am I willing to be totally vulnerable? The last one, in what areas can I be more naked? You see, because the nakedness without the shame was so divergent physically, emotionally, spiritually, economically, you just rating yourself on 1 to 10, 10 being, I'm as good as I can get. Doing an overall rating is probably going to be misleading to you. Why don't you break all five of those down and rate yourself on each one? Which one are you the best at? Which are the one, which one are, were you willing to actually give it up? Was it physically? Or You don't have anything to be afraid of physically. And you've been totally open and not ashamed. But when it comes to financially, you are deceitful, you withhold information, you're misleading because you can't say, okay, I've got one that's a 10 and one that's a one, so I'm a five. That's not going to help you. But if you're able to say, I can go through each of these and say, by God's grace, I'm actually doing pretty well on this one, but I really suck at this one. And this is what I can do to be vulnerable. Do it. I really like coaching because coaches seem like heroes. But it's really not that difficult. Most of the answers that you're looking for are not that complicated. You're just not asking the right questions. And that simple question, where can I be more naked, probably will open a lot of doors to you. I'm pretty sure it will. All right, that's all I have. Let me take a couple questions and I'll be done. How would you advise a single person to apply this sermon today by means, um, by means of how best to prepare for dating and remarriage? Well, I, it was a long time. I've been married a lot longer than I was single. But the, the naked part when I was 19 had everything to do with sex. It had everything to do with physical bodies being naked. And I wish I would have known a lot more about the emotional part, the spiritual part, the economic part. When my wife and I went to, to premarital counseling, before we were married, it was one hour and 45 minutes on finance, and the other 15 minutes on sex. I liked the sex part, I hated the finance part. Um, but you see, I, we didn't know. We did We didn't know and if if you're single and you're dating, make sure that you're looking for a person that you can have this with if you're If you're dealing with some thug that's a jock that all he can do is think about football and he has an i q of about twenty five that guy's probably not a really good candidate for marriage. if you're dating with some guy that's a serial you know going around sleeping with everybody that he's ever looked at, that's probably not a good candidate. But if you're actually qualifying a person that you could spend the rest of your life with and you're asking these kind of questions, you're probably way ahead of the game. If you're involved in a relationship, see if you can't establish some commonality in your thinking about what these things are. Because if you can't, your marriage is going to have a lack of depth and a lack of unity to it. All right, next question. I've got to hurry, I'm sorry. Um, To what degree should we lose ourselves in a marriage that is, is it bad if we give everything? Um, Let me just tell you something, if you haven't figured this out. Your conscience is a terrible thing. Your conscience is a terrible thing. And over the last 23 years, I've worked with a lot of people that have left their marriages. And invariably, somewhere around five years after you're gone, after this marriage has been done, that is when your conscience comes on. Somewhere around five years. And your conscience is fairly brutal because it only says one of two things. It affirms you or accuses you. It says you were good or it says you suck. That's all. That's all. And when you have not given everything and you held something back, I assure you, your conscience is going to be brutal. Whereas if you've given yourself and you said, look, I put myself in this and you took advantage of me, your conscience will be kind. Your conscience will be gracious with you. But if you hold back And you said, should have, would have, could have, I could have done more, I could have persisted longer, or I should have tried, I should have been more sincere. Your conscience is not going to be kind at all. And so, if you're in a marriage, even if it's hard, be all in. Be all in. At least you know that it wasn't your fault. At least you know that you did everything you possibly could. And if it cost you a few more dollars financially, if it cost you a little bit more emotionally, if it cost you a little bit physically, count it to be part of the cost. It was part of the ante for marriage. And if you're in, be in. Even if it's for a little bit, be all in. Last question, I'll be done. How does one who currently is not very tra- transparent in his or her marriage unlearn this lack of vulnerability? I don't know, it's hard. I am, I am really a private person. I've been really vulnerable with you all today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely introverted. The only reason I can get up here every week is because I care so much about the truth. And it, this sounds funny, it's not so much about you. It's because I love the truth. I love to study. I love to figure out what works. And I want to see you do the best you can. Now, overcoming that, I'm, not, I'm never going to be able to over, overcome that entirely. I don't, I don't run around my house naked. I don't. I'm really conservative. Now, I know some of you, you run around naked all the time, and that's okay. It's your house. But you see, I'm not going to do that just because I'm over, I'm becoming vulnerable. It's me. And what's happened over 37 years of marriage, wonderful years of marriage, every moment of it being wonderful, no. But overall, I love my wife and I know she loves me. And there's a sense of safety that I have there, even though I'm introverted. There's a sense, sometimes we expect more from each other than we're capable of giving. Because in the end of the day, me being transparent might not be the same as every one of you being transparent. Because it's me. Own yourself. Be yourself. You know whether you're being transparent. You know whether you've really given yourself away. You know whether you haven't. And if you're all in, I thank God for you. I think your spouse should too but if you're not then make a commitment because you're only yet headed one or two ways according to lewis's last quote you're headed towards the exposure that you could actually really be hurt which is fun because there's possibly love in that or you're headed to hell because you're locking your heart away and while it will never be heard again, you're going to be alone. Impenetrable. Bulletproof heart. You tell me which one you want. You can't have it both ways. You can't give yourself away and hold on to your life at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. All right, that's all I have today. I'm going to, I'm going to pray. We're going to ask the band to come up and we're going to take communion. Um, For those of you that are visiting with us, we have open communion, which means if you're a Christian, we're going to invite you to come down. This is a statement of our faith. So if you're not a Christian, don't do it. Don't do it. There's no point in you, you know, tripping us up or telling us something that's not true. But if you are a Christian, spend a couple moments in your own examination. Come down and partake of broken bread and spilt wine. That Jesus said, you know, This is really a reminder of me. I'm with you now. Let this be a powerful time of our worship and the conclusion of our service together. Father, I would ask that, uh, I I just hope that your spirit would really use these concepts of intimacy and identity with us. I, I think there's some of us that can see even in the blueprint or the pattern of our marriage, whether we've really had that, whether we've really ever given ourselves to a new identity in our marriage, or whether we just selfishly insisted on our own. Some of us in this room know whether we've ever really been naked about anything. Even with those of us that are closest, we've never really done that. We've never really opened our hand because we never wanted to be hurt. Father, whatever that is, I pray your spirit would speak to us. You would help us to know where we need correction, whether it's the adoption of a new vision or whether it's the surrender and the, to the danger and the potential of harm with nakedness. Help us in these things, we pray. We commit this service to you. Um, help us to conclude it in our worship. For We ask and pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.